Welcome to the second wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Tonight is the first installment of our more history-based episodes. I am excited about this because there are so many fun and interesting stories that I would love to share with you, but that don't necessarily fit into the main theme of science discoveries and information. And so I, uh, as I think I've mentioned, am a voracious reader, and I also watch a lot of uh, quirky uh, videos on YouTube about different historical times and historical people, and there's just a lot there that I also love. Um, My degree is actually in history and uh, with a minor in the history of the sciences, and so I am looking forward to being able to share some of these kinds of stories as well. And so I think that it'll be a lot of fun because I think that this will give you a different perspective on the world and be able to really highlight some of the unsung heroes of history. And I think it'll also be a place where I can concentrate on maybe some of the issues that I'm interested in. Um, I found some interesting stories about the history of disability, the history of trans people, and all sorts of other things that I'm interested in and haven't really fit into the show as of yet. And so tonight I am starting with one of my absolute favorite stories. When I first read about this back in 2017, I was absolutely excited about it because it was such a fun story to tell. And so tonight, without further ado, I want to bring you the story of the Quaker Comet. Now, the Quaker Comet is not a celestial body. He was a man named Benjamin Lay, and he was one of the first radical abolitionists in what had not even yet become the United States. On September 19, 1738, he attended a Quaker meeting house in Burlington, New Jersey, for the largest event of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Despite its slightly odd name, this was the organizing body of Quakers for parts of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey, which again at the time were still British colonies. But it still exists today, and it's still an important uh, Quaker uh, organization. And so... um, I think that's pretty interesting that there is still a very large body of Quakers in the United States. I know that in the Valley, there's a pretty uh, large congregation of Quakers, and 
Uh, I definitely think that if I had to choose a religion, uh, Quaker would be on the short list. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, Quakers today, I think would definitely be on the short list for me of, uh, religions if I had to choose one. Uh, luckily, still at this moment in the United States, I don't have to choose one. Um, there are days when I, I wonder if that will continue to be true. Uh, but we are going to, uh, delve into the past today and not, uh, fret about the present or future because I think it's much nicer to dive into a story from the past that is interesting and, uh, impactful without having to worry about all of the terrible things that are happening today. So, back to 1738, where Lay, wearing a greatcoat covering a military uniform and sword, as well as a specialized Bible, waited his turn to talk. Now, if you don't know about Quaker meetings, uh, they don't have a formal structure. Uh, people will gather together and there's no... Um, you know, minister or uh, priest in the way that other congregations might have. And so people basically uh, will speak once they feel like the, uh, quote, spirit moves them. And so at this particular meeting, when it came to be Lay's turn, he announced in a booming voice, addressing the gathering of, quote, weighty Quakers, saying that God Almighty respects all people equally, rich and poor, men and women, black and white alike. He went on to announce that slavery was the greatest sin in the world and challenged those in attendance how can a people who profess the golden rule keep slaves? He then whipped off his coat, revealing his military uniform, Bible, and blade. He shouted, Thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslave their fellow creatures. He then pulled out his sword, which he plunged into the Bible, which, unbeknownst to those present, was hollowed out and contained an animal bladder full of bright red pokeberry juice. He splattered the quote-unquote blood on the shocked crowd of men and women, and uh, it's said that there were gasps and women swooned and, you know, all of that high drama of such a moment. Uh, he said, then said that Quakers who failed to heed the prophet's call must expect physical, moral, and spiritual death. He was then picked up bodily and removed from the building, giving no resistance because as far as he was concerned, he had, he had made his point uh, and he had made his point in a very dramatic fashion that was extremely normal for Benjamin Lay. Lay was an unlikely warrior, a dwarf just four feet tall, 
he was often referred to as hunchback due to a um, condition called kyphosis, uh, which causes an extreme curvature of the spine. A fellow Quaker described him thusly. His head was large in proportion to his body. The features of his face were remarkable and boldly delineated, and his countenance was grave and benignant. His legs were, slow, were so slender as to appear almost unequal to the purpose of supporting him, diminutive as his frame. And there's actually a painting of him, so you can actually see him in later life uh, in a painting. I'm not sure who did it, um, but he looks very um, fierce <laughs> as much as he is uh, small. You can definitely see the fire in him uh, in this picture. So I think it's a pretty uh, excellent representation of him. But uh, despite the fact that he was diminutive, he uh, did not let that stop him from doing anything and from absolutely being a thorn in the side of those he thought were unrighteous. And so he actually referred to himself as Little Benjamin, but he did that in comparison to what he called Little David, who slew Goliath. And so uh, he definitely knew what he was doing. <laughs> he was not someone who uh, didn't understand that he was very much uh, trying to speak truth to power. And uh, not only was he a staunch abolitionist, but he was also a fairly militant vegetarian, almost vegan, a feminist, and opposed to the death penalty. And remember, this is the early 1800s, early 18th century, I mean, uh, early 1700s. And so all of those things weren't even considered uh, movements in any way, shape, or form at that point. Most people ate meat when they could. Uh, women uh, had the word feminist, I don't think, had even been coined yet. Uh, and, of course, the death penalty was very common. As his biographer, University of Pittsburgh historian Marcus Redeker says, he did not care whether people liked it or not. He wanted to draw people in. He was saying, are you for me or against me? Are you for slavery or against it? Now, he lost the battle with the elders of the church but won it with the next generation. Now, draw people in, he did. Lay's first biographer, Benjamin Rush, a frankly terrible physician. Um, if we have time, we'll talk about uh, Benjamin Rush and his being a terrible physician uh, later on in the episode. Um, but he was also a reformer, an abolitionist himself. He was an evangelical um, and was a, uh, you probably know he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Um, 
despite the fact that I say he was a terrible physician, he seemed to be a pretty good guy. Um, he just had really bad ideas about uh, medicine. And so I don't really think of him as a bad uh, person because of that. He just was deeply misguided. <laughs> and so he wrote of Lay. There was a time when the name of this celebrated Christian philosopher was familiar to every man, woman, and to nearly every child in Pennsylvania. But by the 19th century, he was almost gone from the history of abolition, and when mentioned, it was briefly with remarks that he was diseased in his intellect or later cracked in the head. Um... And, you know, this persisted even into the modern day. Um, he was distinguished, he was um, discarded by uh, a lot of historians of abolition, of abolitionism, which is really unfortunate because he wasn't cracked in the head. He was very much alert and, and aware of what he was doing. And he was a showman. He wasn't crazy. Um, and so I was really... Uh, excited when uh, I read about how he was being basically rehabilitated. Now, I will note that he has been treated better in Quaker histories, uh, most likely because Quaker histories probably tend to also just be a little kinder to people <laughs> in general. Um, but as I noted in 2017, Marcus Redeker, who is actually the Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh, revived the story of Lay from the dustbin of history and showed with great care that he was a man of deep passion and clarity of mind. Born in 1682 in Copford, Essex, England, he started out as a shepherd at his um, brother-in-law's farm. And I think it was his brother-in-law, either his brother-in-law or his brother. Sorry, I forgot to note that. And so he did that for a while. But then when it came time to him, for him to go out and start to make a name for himself, uh, his father arranged an apprenticeship to a glove maker in Colchester. Now, at the time, Colchester was both a local center of the textile industry, which was really booming at this time in England, and a place teeming with radical thought. He was a third-generation Quaker from an area with a strong history of religious radicalism, said Dr. Redeker. Unfortunately, it turns out that he didn't really enjoy glove making. He had liked being a shepherd, but that didn't seem to be like something he could do long term. And so at that point, he decided to run away. He ran away to London at the age of 21 to become a sailor. And of course, this was a dramatic change that allowed him a much larger view of the world. And so this is really where I think he personally started to understand his uh, interest in and compassion for um, other people and his interest in uh, slave abolition, slavery abolition. And so 
it turns out that in this period of time, a lot of the people on those ships would have either been deeply connected to slavery or would have been uh, slaves themselves. So um, Redeker says, Leif first learned about slavery through hearing stories from his sailor friends, some of whom may have been slaves themselves. The historian noted, there was also a radical seafaring tradition, a sailor's ethic of solidarity, which connects in lay to the radical tradition. So again, this was a really uh, sort of formative time for him where he really started to understand uh, what was going on in terms of there being a issue here that he found to be distasteful and immoral. And he then immediately started to get into trouble when he came home. And so he first ran into trouble in the Quaker community of Colchester, where he had already begun to speak out against what he saw as those who fell short of his high moral standards. He was a troublemaker at every moment of his life, said Dr. Redeker. He had a powerful sense of his convictions and would speak truth unto power. His next stop was an 18-month stint as a shopkeeper in Barbados. Now, here was where he really, really saw the absolute worst of slavery. Just the absolute horrors. It was the leading slave society of the world, said his biographer. He saw slaves starved to death. He saw them beaten to death and tortured to death, and he was horrified. And in fact, he actually saw one slave kill himself rather than continue to live under the whip. And so he initially tried doing what he had always done, which was speaking out against the plantation owners. Um, but on an island like Barbados, where the plantation owners had an iron grip, they uh, basically uh, forced him to leave the island uh, very soon after he began to rabble-rouse. And so this is when our intrepid hero sailed for Philadelphia, where he became friends with Benjamin Franklin and other luminaries, uh, many who made up the Continental Congress. Now, Franklin would end up publishing Lay's book against the wishes of the Philadelphia Board of Overseers in 1738. And so the book has a really amazing title, which I am going to uh, read to you in full. Uh, it has one of those amazingly florid uh, 18th century uh, title front pieces. And so it says, All slave keepers that keep the innocent in bondage, apostates, pretending to lay claim to the pure and holy Christian religion, of what congregation soever, but especially in their ministers, by whose example of the filthy leprosy and apostasy is spread far and near. It is a notorious sin, which many 
of the true friends of Christ and his pure truth called Quakers have been for many years and still are concerned to write and bear testimony against as a practice so gross and hurtful to religion and destructive to government beyond what words can set forth or can be declared of by men or angels and yet lived in by ministers and magistrates in America. The leaders of the people cause them to err. So yeah, that is the <laughs> title of uh, his book. And it actually became one of the foundational texts of anti uh, of Atlantic anti-slavery literature. Now, before that, though, let's let's go back in time a little bit and talk about a sojourn he took uh, in 1717, where he sailed to Boston in order to ask the local Quaker congregation in Boston to let him marry a woman named Sarah Smith of Deptford, England. She was also a little person was apparently a popular and admired preacher in her Quaker community, as opposed to Jonathan, who, again, even back in 1717, was known as a rabble-rouser. And so, um, you know, the Boston Quakers, perhaps being a tad suspicious uh, of the reason for him coming across the ocean to ask for Sarah's hand in marriage, since they both lived in England, <laughs> asked uh, Lay's home congregation in London to certify that he was indeed a friend in good standing. They wrote that he was clear from debts and from women in relation to marriage, but added, we believe he is convinced of the truth but for want of keeping low and humble in his mind, hath by an indiscreet zeal been too forward to appear in our public meetings. And so, yeah, uh, he apparently had also been uh, calling people covetous in London uh, while he was there, uh, perhaps not noting his own sin of pride. Now, obviously, in context of the story and as a rhetorical flourish, I don't think anything is actually a sin in the Christian sense of the word. So um, I just want to be uh, clear about that, that, you know, he clearly was not humble. <laughs> um, and so that was his one failing when it came to, I think, being a true and proper Quaker is his lack of humility. Um, and I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing because I think that uh, it takes people who are willing to uh, rabble rouse in order to really uh, move people often. And so I think of all of the ways in which even violent uh, protest has been instrumental in moving the needle on uh, 
issues such as the civil rights movement. Um, people talk a lot about the peaceful protests of Martin Luther King Jr. And yes, that was amazing and wonderful. And I do not uh, you know, want to dismar- disparage peaceful protests, but they tend to forget that there was a lot of violence involved in uh, that time period as well that also shaped people. But both were rabble-rousing. Um, and I obviously don't advocate as first principles uh, violence, though I do suggest that a lot of the violence that happens is against property and against the oppressor. Um, and so I am hard to condemn uh, people who are fighting for their very existence and um, that's something that happened back in um, during the protests over George Floyd and things like that. And people were wringing their hands over property damage. And, um, you know, I was really upset about the fact that these pro- people are protesting the lives of human beings being snuffed out unnecessarily and unlawfully. And somebody's worried that they burned down the local target. Um, And that was just very frustrating for me that I understand that, um, you know, people would say, oh, well, there were small business owners and, you know, they have insurance and, um, you know, the government could step in and help them. Um, But again, I wasn't supposed to bring in too much of reality and uh, the the present moment to this. I'm was trying to uh, keep to this wonderful uh, historic vignette. So let us go back to that. <laughs> and so uh, Benjamin was ultimately allowed to marry Sarah, but he would be expelled from two congregations, both from London and from. Um, um, from not Deptford, but, um, she was from Deptford. He was also, um, from Colchester. That was it. Sorry. Uh, and so, yeah, he definitely did not have the best of time before he even arrived in Philadelphia. And so at the time, Philadelphia was North America's largest city with the second largest Quaker community in the world. The couple hoped to join the, quote, holy experiment and to have a future of great liberty. And so we'll see how that worked out (laughs) when we come back. Uh, It looks like it is time to do a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And so you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we will be right back. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we return to our story of Jonathan Lay as he enters the city of brotherly love. The center of the city was the Great Meeting House, home of the Philadelphia Monthly Meeting, and it was filled with men of renown in the city who led both religious and political life within the colony. And this included, as mentioned before, the Quaker Board of Overseers, who vetted all publications. They were represented a side, a side of early American Quakerism, where people came to the colony to do good, and in turn did well. In some cases, very well, amassing large amounts of wealth and power. We know that three of the four leaders of the congregation were slaveholders, as were the majority of Philadelphia Quakers when they first began to circulate in the city. Having come from England, where slavery was rarely seen in places like London, he was shocked to see the bondage, violence, and repression permeating the city of brotherly love. Now, it of course was not as bad as Barbados. Philadelphia had just one in ten persons within the city enslaved, whereas on the island, it was nine out of ten people were enslaved. But it still represented an abhorrent state to lay. Enslaved men, Lay noted, would plow, sow, thresh, winnow, split rails, cut wood, clear land, make ditches and fences, fodder cattle, 
run and fetch up the horses. He saw enslaved women with all the drudgery and dairy and kitchen, within doors and without. He contrasted that to the idleness of the slave owners who failed to keep their slaves in any sort of humane condition while they wore the best clothes and allowed themselves to do all sorts of the sort of 17, uh, 1700s, uh, you know, being a tough um, activities. <laughs> and to add insult to injury, in his opinion, they would leave their slaves as property to, quote, proud, dainty, lazy, scornful, tyrannical, and often beggarly children for them to domineer. And so that was a huge issue wherein, um, obviously, the fact that slaves could never be uh, free, that they continued to be passed down in the family was also something that was really awful. And so Lay wasn't the only one, though, who was expressing their opposition to slavery in the colony at this time. And so soon after arriving, he actually became friends with Ralph Sandiford, who had already published an indictment of slavery in defiance of the Board of Overseers some three years earlier. But by the time Lay met Sandiford, he was a broken man. Sandiford had moved to Philadelphia, from Philadelphia, to a log cabin around nine miles northeast, in part to be free of his persecutors. Lay continued to visit the, quote, very tender-hearted man regularly until his death in May 1733 at the age of 40. Lay blamed his enemies for Sandiford's, what he saw as untimely demise. Yet that didn't deter him at all in taking up the mantle. Now, one of his first stunts involved going to the to an annual meeting with, quote, three large tobacco pipes stuck in his bosom. He sat between the galleries of men and women elders and ministers. As the meeting came to a close, he rose up and dashed one pipe among the men ministers, one among the women ministers, and the third among the congregation assembled. With each blow, he protested not only slave labor, but also luxury and the poor health caused by smoking, quote, stinking sotweed. So even back then, people, there were people who understood that smoking tobacco was bad for you. Um, and so that is also one of those interesting things that doesn't come up very often that, uh, you know, even in the 1700s, there were people who understood that tobacco was not great for you. Um, and so this display was especially meant to show that even the seemingly most insignificant choices could have political consequences. He next took up a position at a gateway to the Quaker meeting house after a deep snow. Knowing all of the friends would need to pass him, he left 
his right leg and foot entirely uncovered, and thrust them into the snow. As each friend took notice and urged him to cover himself in order that he not get sick, he replied, Ah, you pretend compassion for me, but you do not feel for the poor slaves in your fields, who go all winter half-clad. He would also actually disrupt the meetings themselves. Benjamin gave no peace to slave owners, the 19th century radical Quaker Isaac Hopper recalled hearing as a child. As sure as any character attempted to speak to the business of the meeting, he would start to his feet and cry out, there's another Negro master. So, yeah, he was not messing around. (laughs) And he was not the kind of man who took no for an answer because eventually a constabulary was appointed. Uh, So, of course, back at this time, there weren't regular police forces or anything like that. And so the Quakers actually got together a group of enforcers in order to keep him from meetings. But of course, that didn't actually work. (laughs) So one rainy day, he lay down in the mud in front of the main door of the meeting house and required every person leaving to step over his body. (laughs) And so uh, it definitely does uh, give you a flavor of a man who was far before his time. Um, And I think it's a shame that he is not more well known and hasn't had a greater role in the history of early abolitionism in America, uh, or what would become America, obviously. And unfortunately, though, it seems that uh, Lay was destined to follow in Sandiford's footsteps. And so he and Sarah left Philadelphia at the end of March 1734 and moved to the town of Abington. Now, once again, uh, they re- the move required a statement of good standing. So you couldn't just go to another Quaker meeting and be like, hey, I'm here. Uh, they, they had, uh, you know, a system. And so by now, unfortunately, letters from Lay's English enemies had reached Robert Jordan Jr., one of the Philadelphia overseers, uh, who Lay had a particular uh, pachance for mentioning as one of his targets. Uh, and so he was able to get uh, this information. He was one of the overseers in Philadelphia, and it gave him enough leverage to deny him a letter of good standing. Though Sarah was given one, because again, Sarah continued to be this kind of quiet, uh, you know, peaceful Quaker who was in perfectly good standing with everyone. And so this judgment would prove a bitter wound for Benjamin, especially after the untimely death of Sarah of unknown causes in late 1735. And in fact, he would later accuse Jordan 
of having been instrumental in the death of my dear wife. And so it was after Sarah's death that he took up the pen and began writing the book he would ultimately ask Franklin to publish. Now, the book, as you can probably tell from the title, is not exactly your normal uh, <laughs> textbook or uh, autobiographical fare you see in today's uh, bookstores. The book is a hodgepodge of autobiography, prophetic biblical polemics against slavery, writing by others, surreal descriptions of slavery in Barbados, and a bitter account of his own struggles against the slave-holding Quakers of Philadelphia. Redeker notes that it was an important advance in abolitionist thought, stating that no one had ever taken such a militant, uncompromising, universal stand against slavery. He goes on, Lay's originality lay in his utterly uncomprom uncompromising attitude. Slave-keeping was a filthy, gross, heinous, hellish sin, a soul sin, the greatest sin in the world. He argued that no man or woman, lad or lass, ought to be suffered to pretend to preach truth in our meetings while they live in that practice, which is all a lie. And so he actually thought that slave owners bore the mark of the beast and thus needed to be cast out of the church since they were basically uh, servants of Satan himself. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> he was serious. And uh, this is a book that laid it all out there. Um, and so I'm not at all surprised that Franklin published it, though. Uh, Franklin obviously was a bit of a rabble rouser himself. Um, as you might have heard me say before, uh, Benjamin Franklin is definitely my favorite problematic uh, founding father. Uh, so all of the founding fathers are highly problematic, but uh, Benjamin Franklin is definitely my favorite. Um, he was notorious for many things, um, including having run the first almanac out of business with um, some pretty dodgy uh, rumor mongering. And um, yeah, so um, he's not exactly <laughs> opposed to uh, a bit of uh, polemical writing. Let's put it that way. Uh, he was definitely not afraid to publish this sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, now, Lay was actually writing during a time, much like today, where the younger generation was questioning the wisdom of the elders and changing their views of the quote-unquote peculiar institution. And so this actually has a slightly happy ending. Uh, I just want to let you know. 
So unfortunately, we don't know much about how regular members of the Friends uh, of the congregation reacted to Lay. There's not a lot written about, um, you know, the actual congregation and its feelings at that time. Uh, But we obviously know and have heard often in this story about the fact that uh, the elders, we know what they thought. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he... A lot of his writing had uh, very thinly veiled references to them uh, in his denouncements. And so uh, they made sure that he was expelled from the congregation again. The board issued an official condemnation signed by another of the uh, main characters of this tale, uh, John Kinsey, proclaiming that the book contained contains gross abuses, not only against some of their members in particular, but against the whole society, and adding that the author is not of their religious community. The Abington meeting also expelled him. He would become the last of the, frankly, very few, but still, uh, expelled for protesting slavery among the Quakers. Now, of course, no one would expect that this deterred him, and it didn't. He actually still attended worship services and continued to argue about slavery's role in the fellowship. But he also began to kind of withdraw into a simple life alone, much in line with the teachings of the Quaker faith, to live simply and to, um, you know, be in line with nature. So he built a home in Abington near a fine spring of water in a natural excavation in the earth, a.k.a. a cave. Um, And so he lined the entrance with stone and created a roof using evergreen branches. Now, the cave was apparently quite spacious and well-equipped. It had a room, it had room for a spinning jenny and for a large library. Uh, This was definitely not a man who was out of his mind. He was definitely a very intellectual and uh, well-respected or well-read and, uh, you know, well-respected against people who agreed with him. Um, And so he planted apple peach and walnut trees, and he tended a bee colony that was apparently a hundred feet long. Um, He also grew potatoes, squash, radishes, and melons, uh, most of those uh, native to the continent of America. And uh, he used these fruits of his labor as, again, his main food source and drank only milk and water, which made him basically almost a vegan. Um, He refused to eat, quote-unquote, flesh, as he believed in the divine pantheistic presence of God in all living things, and that animals were God's creatures. He even made his own clothes out of flax to avoid the exploitation of others' labor, both human and animal. Lay hoped that one day all people would follow in his footsteps and live off the innocent fruits of the earth. 
Now, in 1757, at 75, Lay's health did begin to decline, though again his mind stayed sharp. He began to stay home more and do things around his property, leaving behind what had been uh, long walks um, and other more strenuous activities, as well as attending services. The next year, a group of Quaker reformers undertook an internal purification campaign who championed moving back to a simpler way of living, stricter church discipline, and most importantly, the gradual end to entanglements with slavery. Not only that, but Lay was told that the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, after agitation from the rank and file and that younger generation, that they were beginning the process of disowning Quakers who traded slaves. Now, owning slaves would take a little longer. It would still be allowed for another 18 years, but this still represented a serious first step toward abolition within the congregation. And Lay survived long enough to be able to actually enjoy this fact. And so at that point, he took stock for a moment and then, quote, a few moments reflection, after a few moments of reflection, he rose from his chair and in an attitude of devotional reverence said, thanksgiving and praise be rendered under, unto the Lord God. A few moments later, he added, I can now die in peace. Now, he soon became more ill, though the reason, again, was unclear. I mean, it could just have been complications um, from the dwarfism, or it could be any number of uh, absolutely uh, devastating diseases that were rife at the time. Um, and so it could have also just been that you know, he was an old man at that point, and he had lived to see movement in the institution that he loved. He soon became more ill, um, and uh, he asked friends to take him to the home of his friend Joshua Morris in Abington. And so he died there on February 3rd, 1759, at the age of 77. And of course, that's one of those things people always talk about, you know, uh, the uh, mean average of, uh, you know, longevity in like the 1700s uh, was like, you know, 35 or 40 or something like that. Um, but that's usually not weeding out infant mortality. So plenty of people lived into their 70s, into their 80s and 90s. Um, you know, if you've ever looked in graveyards in New England, you'll see graves of people who were in their 80s and 90s when they died. Um, and so he was buried in an unmarked grave near his beloved wife, Sarah, in the Quaker burial ground in Abington. However, Sadly, in the book of burials at Abington for that year, he is simply noted with his name 
and a slightly wrong date and age. But beyond that, what is really sad is that it did not have a notation in the margin that showed whether the person was an elder, a minister, and the congregation of which they were a member. He died rejected by the faith that he had fought so hard to bring in line with what he thought was the moral will of God and his own personal faith. But he did survive to see it move nonetheless. And, of course, he didn't see this last indignity. So I do think that he was able to die at peace, um, which I think is a pretty good thing um, for the ending of this story. Um, we do have a few more minutes, so I did want to go back and talk for a minute about our friend Benjamin Rush, uh, because I did tease the fact that he was a really bad physician. <laughs> and again, uh, he was apparently very devoted to his patients. And, um, you know, he, he was apparently very good, but, uh, to his patients, but he also was absolutely fanatically devoted to bloodletting um, and uh, purgatives. And so he was a huge believer in what was called uh, heroic me medicine at the time. And so, yeah, um, there's actually a story about someone going to see him and, uh, you know, that his entire house was just, uh, almost seemed like a carnal house. And of course he was just really, really into bleeding. And of course that wasn't a great thing for people at the, beyond that, he was also considered the father of American psychiatry. However, one of his favorite treatments there was called the cold water pour. And so this was to establish governance over the deranged patients. But that was basically by dumping a stream of cold water down their coat sleeves. Um, so if you've ever seen one of those uh, dramas about uh, or horror movies about uh, insane asylum treatments in, uh, you know, earlier ages. That was something that started with Benjamin Rush as well. And Rush uh, probably met Lay during the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. And so... Uh, obviously, his idea of uh, bloodletting people, he actually uh, underestimated or overestimated the amount of blood people had. Uh, one of his critics uh, named William Cobbett decried, the times are ominous indeed when quack to quack decries, cries purge and bleed. Uh, Cobbett even went so far as to say that Rush's so-called heroic therapy was a perversion of nature's healing powers. 
And so, yeah, um, <laughs> potentially a good guy in many ways, but uh, not a great physician. And so obviously, uh, heroic medicine, the, the most famous um, anecdote of that was, of course, at the time, George Washington, who had a cold and went to the physicians who basically bled him dry and killed him. <laughs> And on that fun note, um, I will say goodnight. And uh, next week, more science uh, news and interesting tidbits. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.